Well, hey, y'all. Welcome to RUF. My name is John Trapp. I'm the campus minister here. I'm so glad y'all are here. Thanks for being here. I know this is like the middle of the grind of school right now, and um, you had to walk through cold and rain to get here. So I'm, I'm glad you're here. Um, you know, one of the things we just saying um, is the reality that we are full of falseness and sin. He's saying, false and full of sin I am, thou art full of truth and grace. Um, I hope that that's encouraging to you. I know that's like kind of a heavy thing to sing and to admit about ourselves. But um, one thing that that means is that if we can all admit that in song, then that means that um, maybe we can actually begin to be authentic with one another, um, to admit that... um, you know what, I am just as messed up as the person next to me. And even though the people around me may seem like their lives are put together, they may seem like they're crushing it, none of us are. And so if this is your first time at RUF, if this is your 20th time at RUF, this is a place for people who don't have it all together. And we're talking about the subject of relationships uh, for the rest of the semester, and we're looking today at um, dating. And that is a place in life, in my own life, in my past, and maybe in your life where you have felt like, I, you know what, I do not have it all together with dating. And maybe for some of you, this is a especially um, painful subject because you've experienced pain in, in your dating life, whether it's from a past relationship or a relationship that you have longed for that hasn't happened. Or something, that some, something is, that's been done to you from someone who's dated you. But this is, I, I, I want to go in just to, to, tonight saying on the front end that there is brokenness in this room around this topic. Because we are a room full of sinners. And a room full of people who've been sinned against. And what I want to look at tonight is... Um, we're, the subject of our series is called Renewing Relationships, and the, the title of the sermon is, uh, tonight is called Dying to Date. Dying to Date. And I want to I look at um, this passage in Mark 8. You know, like a silly pastor joke, but someone was like, you know, if you told, if you were going to tell a sermon, speak, preach a sermon on the biblical view of dating, it would be the shortest sermon ever, because there isn't one. Right. There, the dating isn't in the Bible. It's not in the Bible, but that doesn't mean it's necessarily bad. It's just something that didn't exist in you know, first century Palestine. It's a cultural phenomenon that's really kind of evolved over the last 100 years. And so what that means is, even though it's not in the Bible, what we can do is we can take biblical um, ethics and biblical wisdom and apply it to this cultural phenomenon that we call dating. And that's what we're going to look at uh, in this passage today, because this this passage really is Jesus describing what does the Christian life look like. What is the Christian life like? And we're going to apply that to the idea of dating. So let me uh, me read this, and then we'll pray together. This is Mark 8. I'll just read uh, verses 34 through 36. And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. 
For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? This is God's word. Let me pray for us. Father, we thank you that you have given us your word and that it's true and that it speaks to our life today. We pray that you would help us to see that now. I pray that the words of my mouth and that the meditations of all of our hearts will be holy and pleasing to you. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so um, a lot of y'all know I'm from a small town in North Alabama called Tuscumbia. And um, that area of Alabama actually has... It's the birthplace of Helen Keller. We're really proud of that. But it also has the, uh, a lot of art has come out of this area. Um, Muscle Shoals, there's a great documentary on Netflix about Muscle Shoals and all the music that came out of there. The song R-E-S-P-E-C-T was recorded in Muscle Shoals, Alabama. Elvis recorded stuff in, in Muscle Shoals, Alabama. Anyway, so there's a bunch of artists. And my sister works with a lot of artists. She works with musicians. And one of the artists that she works with, with, I can't tell you his name because of the story I'm about to tell you, um, and you'll understand in a second. So, she works with this artist who, his, like, his vibe of art is, he's really into skeletons. Like, human skeletons, animal skeletons, like, he'll take a painting, he'll go and buy a painting at a flea market of, like, a woman and her child, and then he'll just draw a skeleton over the top of that painting and like repurpose it, and then he goes and sells it for like a thousand bucks. Sounds like a pretty good business model to me. But anyway, the other kind of stuff that he does is he gets like the skeletons of animals, and like he'll make these like massive chandeliers out of like a full elk skeleton, and someone will like buy it for a ton of money and put it in their, you know, ski lodge or whatever. Or he'll make a birdhouse out of bird bones. It's like, you know, okay. So he does these things, and he made friends with this guy who is a filmmaker, and the guy did a documentary about this skeleton artist, okay? Now, the documentary maker became sick in the middle of this documentary that he was making, and he actually died. But before he died, he asked my sister's friend, he actually got him to sign a contract promising him that in five years he would exhume his body and make him into art. Right? <laughs> so he, this, this is just so amazing. So they buried this guy. He's from California, shocker, right? So this guy gets buried in an organic cemetery because those are a thing in California. He gets buried in an organic cemetery because his body will decompose more quickly in an organic cemetery because there's, I don't think they even use caskets. They just kind of dig a hole and throw your body in there. And so this, this man is, he's been buried in the five-year anniversary when his body will have decomposed completely and just his skeletons will be left. The five-year anniversary is this April. And so my sister was telling another documentary guy about this, and he's like, I must film this and make it its own documentary. It's like a documentary about a buried documentary guy. Um, the reason I can't tell you is because like, they're still like, communicating with lawyers to see if this is even legal and if they can do this or not. And Sarah, my sister was like, well, all I know is that this artist guy who's from like 
you know, backwoods Alabama, who's given his word to his friend that he's going to do it. She's like, whether it's legal or not, like in April, on April the 7th, he's going to be in the organic cemetery with a shovel. Uh, <laughs> so why do I tell you this story? Well, first off, because I couldn't believe it when I heard it, and I really want to tell you guys. But also, <laughs> also, this, I know this is weird. I know this is weird. But this is actually a picture of the Christian life. This is a picture of a, the Christian life is that you would die and be made into a work of art. But the work of art that Jesus is going to make you into is not one that is ghastly or stark, like skeletal art looks like. It's not a, it's not a, um, a stark semblance of who you once were. That's not the kind of art that Jesus is going to make you into. The biblical story claims that you, you are going to be made into, if you are in Christ, if you believe in him, that you are going to be made into what you are always made to be. Fully alive. Fully loved. Which is what you were made for. Completely beautiful and desired. But the, the biblical story also tells us that the path to this is death. The Christian life is a call to die. So tonight, okay, A, if you aren't a Christian and you're in the room, my question for you is, is this worth dying for? That's what I want you to think about, okay? If you are a Christian, I want you to consider what does it look like to apply the Christian life to your dating life? What does it look like to take up your cross, as Jesus says, and follow him, and die. So, three points tonight. First, the call to die. Second, dying when dating. And third, is it worth it? Okay? The call to die, dying when dating, is it worth it? Okay, first, the call to die. I want, in order to get what Jesus is talking about in this passage in Mark 8, I've got to give you a little bit of context. So let me go back a few verses. The whole first half, this is kind of, we kind of just hit like the hinge point in the book of Mark, Okay? So from Mark 1 through the middle of Mark chapter 8, the, the main question that the author is addressing is this. Who is Jesus? And he's dropping these little breadcrumb clues about who Jesus is all throughout the book. And Jesus, you see Jesus doing things like feeding 5,000 people with just a few pieces of fish and bread. You see Jesus calming a storm with the word, of his, with the power of his word. You see just a few verses earlier, Jesus has just healed a man who was blind. And all of this is hinting at who Jesus is. And the climactic part of this first half of the book is Mark eight twenty nine, when Jesus finally asks that question to his disciples. He says, who do people say that I am? That's the question that's being begged the whole first part of the chapter 1 through 8. He says, who do people say that I am? And Peter answers, the Christ. It's like Peter's shining moment of his life at this point. Like, all the disciples are, you know, Jesus is like, who do people say I am? And all the disciples are kind of sitting there, and Peter speaks up, and he gets it right. I mean, it's, it's the best day of Peter's life at this point. And then, and Jesus is like, you know what? You're right, Peter. And let me tell you what that means. And then he says this, Mark eight thirty one. He He began to t- teach them that the Son of Man must suffer 
many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. Jesus prophesied to them, this is what's going to happen to me. So Jesus is like, you know what? Yes, I am the Christ and I am powerful and I am able to calm storms and feed people and heal the blind. I'm able to do all that stuff. And so you know what that means I'm going to do here in this world? I'm going to die. And Peter doesn't like that plan. In fact, Peter hates this plan. And what he does is he takes Jesus aside and Peter begins to rebuke Jesus. I want you to see the irony of this. Peter has literally just said, you are the Christ. But now let me tell you what you need to do with your life. Like this whole plan, I know you're the Messiah and the Christ and all, but I really think I know what needs to happen. You don't need to die. I'm going to rebuke you for saying that. And do you know what Jesus then says? Jesus looks at Peter, who's just had like the greatest day of his life, and Jesus, two verses later, looks at Peter after Peter rebukes him, and he says, get behind me, Satan. Right? That's like from the top of the top to the bottom, real quick. Peter. That is just Peter in a nutshell. It's kind of me. That's like us in a nutshell, is it not? Um, and Peter, just, he just went from getting like the question of the whole first eight chapters right to getting called Satan by Jesus. <laughs> um, dang, right? Like, is, Jesus, is Jesus just being real nasty to Peter right here? I don't think he is. But I do think that he is identifying with what the way that Peter is thinking is demonic. And the reason that I think Jesus is identifying this is because Jesus really loves Peter. And you see that demonstrated through the rest of this book as Peter fails and fails and fails and fails and Jesus loves him. So why is, why is Jesus speaking to him this harshly? He's doing it because he knows what's best for Peter and he wants what's, what's best for Peter. This reminds me of, have y'all seen the memes for uh, the reason my kid is crying? This is like a, once you have, once you have kids, like you start passing around all, like parents have memes too, it's not just you guys, okay? So I'm going to share with you, these aren't trap kids unfortunately, but we could totally make some at some point, but I'm going to share with you a few memes of um, why my kid is crying. Here's one, I won't let him eat styrofoam. So like this kid is Wanted to eat styrofoam. He's so cute. But his, his mom just like pulls out the phone and yeah, snaps a picture. Because he is mad at his mom because she won't let him eat styrofoam. All right, next picture. I put his hood up when it got chilly. <laughs> the nerve of his mother to not want him to get the flu. How dare she? All right, do the next one. We wouldn't let him lick the dog. <laughs> I hate when my mom does that to me, right? Wouldn't let him lick the dog. All right, last one. He does not want to be safe near water. <laughs> Look, those are really cute and fun, but that is us. We think we know what's best for us, and we get so upset when we don't get it. Or we think we know it's best for us, and we don't really trust that God truly has our best interest. And so when he puts that life jacket on us, like that kid, we get mad about it. He just loves you. 
Like that mom loves her kid. That's why she's putting a life jacket on him. But he doesn't want that. That's what Peter's doing here. You could, if you made like a, I don't want to give you ideas, but like John, a John Trapp crying meme of like, he wants to be, <laughs> he wants to eat a box of Oreos and watch Netflix all day. Like you could make that of me. That's a John Trapp meme. But the, because Jesus loves me, he has told us in his word about these things called the seven deadly sins. One of which is gluttony and one of which is slothfulness. And he calls them deadly. They're deadly sins, the Bible calls it. Because what those things do and what sin does is as delicious as it feels to eat a box of Oreos and binge watch Netflix all day or all weekend or all summer. Have you ever done that where you just like go home and you're like, I am just going to chill out for a week or two weeks. And you kind of get to the end of it and you feel terrible. But then your friend who went to camp and got sunburned and like worked all the time and was like serving people all the time, they come back and they just like are super hyper about camp and they're kind of annoying about it. What is that? It's because we weren't made to be self-focused. We weren't made for that. And God, what, what God wants is he wants what's best for you. But sometimes we don't like that. So what Jesus does, he gathers everyone around him. And in verse 35, he basically says this. You want to follow me? You've got to die. Jesus is not being mean. He's not being mean. He's being like those parents in the memes. He knows what's best. And he explains in verse 35, if you try to save your life, you'll lose it. But if you lose your life for my sake, you'll save it. Okay, so this leads me to my second point. Dying when dating. What does it look like to apply the Christian life to the way that we think about dating? What's Jesus talking about and how does this apply? Um, what he's saying here is if you, tr- if you only trust yourself and what you think you need, you're going to lose your life. You, if some of you have been here, coming here for a few weeks, you'll remember that when we talked about friendship, I said one of the things that's, wrong, that, that's dysfunctional about our friendships, um, kind of the dysfunction that we bring into them, is we make our friendships all about ourselves which is the opposite of what we were made for. If what the Bible says is true, that you are made in the image of a triune God, who is Father and Son and Holy Spirit in his being. Genesis 1.26 says that when God creates man, he says, let us make man in our image. You, individual person, are made in the image of an us. You are made for relationships. But when we come into a relationship and we make it all about us, we aren't being what we were made to be because... Who God is, is he is, he exists in community within himself. A community that is perfect love, that is other-oriented, that is oriented towards the good of the other. And so that's what you were made for. That's what you were made for. But the way, the way that we treat dating is we treat it as if it exists primarily for ourselves and for our own happiness. We ask ourselves, does this person make me happy? 
that becomes the guiding question of our dating because we are self-centered and self-focused. Does this person make me happy? I want you to listen to this. The goal of a relationship is not your happiness. It's your holiness. The goal of a relationship is not your happiness. It's your holiness. Hebrews 12, 14, the author says, Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. In all your relationships, you were made to strive for holiness. So maybe now you're thinking like, okay, what does that look like? And the, my best shorthand answer for that is that it looks like Jesus. A holy human looks like Jesus. So, before you date someone, I want you to ask this. Will they help me to be more like Jesus? Is this someone who is loving, who is other-oriented, someone who is submissive to God's word, like Jesus, who's willing to die to his desires for the good of others, like Jesus? Because here's the thing. If you, if you aim for holiness in your relationship you will get happiness thrown in. But if you aim for happiness, you will get neither. If you aim for holiness in your relationship, you will get happiness thrown in. But if you aim for happiness, you will get neither. So, thinking in this way, I think does two things, okay? Aiming for holiness reorients you in two ways. First, in who you date, and second, in how you date. Okay? First, in who you date, and second, in how you date. First, who you date. When I, <laughs> when I went to Vanderbilt, my buddies um, developed what they call... We, we are... Everyone does... I think a lot of people do this. I'm going to, like, confess to you what my friends did. Um, but we all kind of, like, make these lists of what we're looking for in a significant other, if you will. You know, like, I, they need to be this, this, and this. My buddies at Vanderbilt said, you, you just need four C's, like the letter C. Cool, cute, Christian, and then they added, and Calvinist. <laughs> that is a nerdy Vanderbilt joke right there. Wow, that is some nerdy theology. Okay, cool, cute, Christian, Calvinist, four C's. Let's close in prayer. No, I'm just kidding. Um, but, uh, what, what is it at Texas? Like, just the lists that we make. You know, is it, is, are, are you only willing to date someone from a certain fraternity or from a certain high school or neighborhood or who has a certain kind of intellect or likes a certain kind of music? or maybe they're debt-free, or they have to be gluten-free, or like whatever it is. I, I don't know, like whatever it is. But <laughs> look, those things aren't necessarily wrong. They're not. Yay for gluten-free people. Okay. But like those things aren't necessarily wrong, but they can't take precedent, y'all. That, the status and who they are, and what, that, that can't, take, it can't take precedent. And maybe, some of, maybe you, you need to let some of those things go. Look, what I want for you, 
I think what God wants for you is that you would date someone who's willing to die for Jesus' sake. Someone who grasps the good news of Jesus in such a way that they are becoming, maybe not there yet, but they are becoming more loving, more tender, more humble, more gracious. Do they grasp that Jesus the King lived his life as a servant? And so they want to be like that. That's the kind of person you want to be with. That's the kind of person you want to get to know better, and that's the kind of person you want to be with in 50 years. One of my um, heroes is a guy, I serve on the board with, with him um, for this youth ministry organization. I've gotten to know him for the last like five years. His name's Jim Holland. Jim is like, he's a pastor, but he cusses a lot. It's just like his thing. And he also is like a gourmet chef. And his, his, church, uh, his church motto is love God, love people, love life. That, like, that's a church I want to go to. Love God, love people, love life. And Jim, for all of his flaws, is someone who really loves Jesus and who dies for Jesus every day. And um, I didn't know this. We went to the beach um, two weeks ago for our board meeting, Laguna Beach Christian Retreat Center, summer conference. You should totally go. Florida trip, people know what I'm talking about. Anyway, we were there at the promised land. Um, Anyway, sorry. But Jim comes with his family, and they've adopted this orphan girl. She's 60 years old. And they've adopted this sweet little two-year-old orphan girl because his mission is to love God, love people, and love life. And I was like, dude, how are you and your wife doing this? Like, his wife takes care of all of her grandkids, too, and now they've folded this little orphan into their, the, the life of their family. And he just, he gets this big smile on his face. He's this good old Tennessee Memphis boy. He's like, got his dip in. <laughs> I was like, how, are, how do you, how do y'all do this? How does your wife do this? And he goes, man, my wife is aging like a fine wine. <laughs> how great is that? <laughs> my wife's aging like a fine wine. Look, that's what you want. You want to date someone who loves Jesus. And God is going to sanctify over years and years and years. He's going to make more like him. Someone who's going to become a servant. Someone that you can serve with. Someone that you can serve. Now look, is it cl- maybe, maybe you feel like this is a closed-minded to say that you need to only date a Christian. Like that Christians need to date Christians. Um. And I know that that sounds closed-minded, but I actually think it's merciful and loving. Here's why. If you're a Christian, that means that at your core, the most important thing about you is your faith. And for you to unite yourself to somebody who fundamentally doesn't get that about you means that they will not understand the thing that is most core and central to your being. And you can't be intimate with someone like that. And they can't be intimate with you 
and what you want, if you love them, what you want for them is for them to have intimacy. So what, what ultimately has to happen if a Christian doesn't marry a Christian is one of two things has to happen. Either you have to stay intimate with God at the cost of, bec- of not being intimate with your spouse. Or you have to become more intimate with your spouse and put, push God to the margins as you make decisions in life, as hard things arise, if you are going to bring your faith into that decision-making process, they're not going to understand you or that because it's the most central thing to your being. It's not unkind or closed-minded. It's merciful to them. And so really what you must say is, look, either, either you're going to have to move towards faith or we can't be together. And one of those things might be hard, but, the, but to marry someone and, to not, and for them to not be a Christian is impossible. So pick the hard thing, not the impossible thing. So that's who you date. Secondly, how you date. Ephesians, Ephesians 5 gives a great description for how men and women should relate. But it does so how, how they should relate in a married context. So this may feel like I'm getting ahead of myself because we're talking about marriage in, t- in a couple weeks. But Ephesians 5, through 25 says this, Wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Okay, look, like I said, we're going to talk a lot more about this in the coming weeks. But just a couple things to think about here. First, girls, when, when the submit word gets dropped, like maybe your skin began to crawl just a touch. And we'll, we'll unpack that. But I want you to see something. Paul is clear that the only person for whom a wife is supposed to submit to is her husband not the boyfriend. There's a, there was this Q&A that happened with R.C. Sproul, who's a theologian. He's sometimes a little bit grumpy, but he's awesome. Um, and in this Q&A, this guy stands up, and he's like, Mr. Reverend Sproul, my girlfriend won't submit to me. What should I do? And Sproul answered, she won't submit? Good. <laughs> That's it. <laughs> She's not supposed to. And what that means is, look, you don't need to submit to your boyfriend now, but I want you to consider what would it look like to submit to your husband even though you haven't met him yet? To the person who you will, if it's God's will, one day meet and be with. And guys, before you think, I'm going to get you off easy, I want you to think about this. Paul says that you're called to love your wives as Christ loved the church. Do you know what Jesus did for the church? He died for it. This isn't like, this isn't like the go-to verse, guys, if you're trying to like use the Bible to like win an argument. Because at the end, Paul's like, oh yeah, by the way, guys, you need to die for the good of your wife. Um... But he doesn't say die for your girlfriend. 
die for your wife. So what I want you to begin imagining and thinking about is what would it look like, men, to die for your future wife now? And what I mean by that is what would it look like to lay down the things that you want out of your girlfriend to deny yourself that for the good of your future spouse. And maybe you think you're dating your future spouse and so you can just do whatever, but you haven't made vows to each other. And so you don't know if that is your future spouse. So what would it look like to, before, before doing something, even, even doing something physically with your significant other, to ask, am I loving my future spouse right now? in the way that I engage with this person physically? Am I loving my future spouse right now? Or think about this. I know you, you don't know who that person might be yet, but consider Matthew seven twelve, the golden rule. Jesus says, So whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. So maybe before you maybe before you like Netflix and chill or whatever with your significant other, ask yourself, do I want someone doing this to my future spouse? Because biblical wisdom tells me to do whatever I wish another person would do to me. So do I want somebody doing this with my future spouse? I think, I think that it's God's mercy that he doesn't, like when you're dating or you're about to date, you kind of just want to know, like, look, just tell me, what's the line that I can go to? Because as soon as, like, we hear a line, like, we want to, like, get up to, like, the very edge of it, you know, physically or what, emotionally or spiritually or whatever. And I think it's God's mercy that he doesn't give us the line, but he instead gives us biblical wisdom to consider. And so, I'm not, I'm not telling you a line. But what I am telling you to do is think about how can I love this person that I may have not yet met? Or even if I do think I know who that is, how can I love them until they become my actual spouse? How can I deny myself for my future spouse's good? I hope I'm making sense. If I'm not, come talk to me afterwards. But look, God, God is not holding out with you with sex. He's not. He's not the parent putting the life jacket on the kid because he's just being mean to him. God wants you to have amazing, spine-tingling, toe-curling sex. There's books in the Bible about it. Like, entire books of the Bible. Read, read the Song of Solomon, but like, whew, just like, <laughs> be ready. <laughs> Maybe like with like someone else in the room. I don't know, like, Read, read Song of Solomon. God wants you to have beautiful sex with your spouse because he loves you and because it's a picture of his love for you. So is denying yourself worth it? Can you trust him? Can you trust him or is God just being mean with this? There is, um, I'm closing with this. So there's uh, a tribe in Africa that used to practice this. 
Um, this is their version of dating. This is awesome. So if a guy liked a girl and wanted to marry her, there was only one thing he had to do. This is it. This is the only thing he had to do. With the father's consent, he had to go with a spear. The suitor would take a spear and go kill an elephant by himself and bring the elephant back to the father and then marry my daughter. Christy and I are looking into this for our trap girls. <laughs> kind of serious. Um, but <laughs> think about this. Let's say that the guy does do that. Like, he goes with a spear. I mean, apparently, like, this, they were doing that. Like, the guy goes with a spear. He slays an elephant with a spear by himself. And then he comes back with the elephant, and they get married. Do you think his, his wife ever struggled with questions of, like, I wonder if he's really committed to me? <laughs> like, I wonder if he's really in this. No, he killed an elephant for me with a spear. I think he's committed to me. And what I want you to know is that Jesus doesn't, he doesn't tell us to do these things, to, to pick up your cross and follow me and deny yourself and do all these hard things, but he's not in it. He's so in it for you that he picked up his cross. He denied himself. And died for you. And you know who he died for? He died for people who suck at dating. He died for people who have failed over and over and messed up big time. He died for people who had super broken relationships. Prostitutes like Mary Magdalene. And women like the Samaritan woman at the well who had had five broken marriages. Jesus died for them. Because he loves people who don't have it all together. And so you can trust that it is worth it because he's in it for you. And he loves you. So, let me pray for us. Father, thank you that you did send Jesus to come and to live among us, to redeem us from our sin and um, to call us to a life of self-denial, which in some strange way it's true that when we deny ourselves, we actually find life. But when we try to hold on to the things that we think will make us happy, they only end in emptiness and death. So Lord, I pray that you would help us to find life, to have the courage to deny ourselves, because you had the courage for us. I pray that we would be rooted in that, in your grace. And I ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.